0: If you have your Bible, uh, turn to the gospel according to Luke as we continue our way through uh, Luke's gospel. We'll be in chapter 7 this morning, uh, verses 36 through chapter 8, verse 3. Luke 7, verses 36 through chapter 8, verse 3. I want to open with a question this morning and one that I want all of us to not only consider this morning, but it'd be a healthy question for us to probably consider consistently uh, throughout our lives as we seek the Lord as Christians, and it's simply this. Are you grateful for Jesus? Are you grateful for Jesus? Now, if we're honest, this is a question that we will quickly and emphatically, I would assume, answer, yes, of course, I am grateful for Jesus, But I want us to kind of dig a little deeper this morning, maybe dig a little below the surface with this question, and ask the follow-up question, why? Are you grateful for Jesus? If so, then why? Why are you grateful for Jesus? Now, if we think about our lives, if we maybe particularly our prayer lives, and if we really evaluate what our prayer lives, what our lives really look like, and it's really some self-inspection that would be helpful, some of us might conclude that we grumble to Jesus more than we express our great gratitude to Jesus for who He is. If we consider our Christian lives, our prayer lives, and we evaluate this question, am I grateful for Jesus, we may conclude that Much of our relationship with Christ is us grumbling to Jesus, opposed to expressing gratitude for who He is. Now, when I say grateful, I don't mean grateful for what Jesus has given us. You know, most of us can look at our lives and we can see the many blessings that God has given us. We can look at all of our stuff, you know, we all have stuff. We all have closets just full of stuff, guys, that it's just annoying over time, but we just can't get rid of it, right? It's something we might need one day. Hadn't needed it in 10 years, but we just might need it one day, right? And so I'm not saying grateful for stuff. I'm not talking about grateful for the comforts that we have, all the comforts in life and all of the security that we, that we have in life. We can say that we are grateful for Jesus for all of this stuff. And a lot of times when we say that we are grateful, it is with these things in mind. And these things are not bad in and of themselves. We are grateful to Jesus for what he has given us, for what we indeed have. But what if you didn't have? What if we didn't have all of our stuff? What if we didn't have our comfort? What if we didn't have this security? Would you be grateful To Jesus, for who He is. Now, it's not a coincidence that this is the text that we are in this Sunday, following a trip to Dominican Republic. And I can assure you, I was hit in the face with this reality as I pondered this text of Scripture that God has given us with this encounter between Jesus and this woman, as we spent time in another country this past week as we went around and met, various people spent some time in different communities, some of which are just heartbreaking, all of which don't have air conditioning, by the way, none of which have clean water, the whole country, Dominican Republic. I was asking myself this very question as I pondered this text for this sermon this morning. We met with pastors, we met with Ministry and community leaders, school teachers. We met with kids in schools. All all of the children thought that Wesley Peden was a celebrity, by the way. (laughs) Wesley was the greatest thing since Justin Bieber at these schools we went to, at least among the young ladies. The most popular question, are you married? (laughs) C. (laughs) C. And we heard this phrase over and over, Gloria Dios." glory to God, over and over and over. As I saw with my own eyes people who were grateful to Jesus, not because of what they had, not because of comfort, not because of clean water, not because of air conditioning, not because of nice big houses, not for the stuff. They said Gloria a Dio, because of the unmerited grace of God, because of the unmerited grace that He had bestowed upon them through salvation. And I can assure you, church, it rattled me to the core of how often I am so ungrateful to Jesus for who He is. I'm reminded of a sermon, a very popular sermon that I would commend to all of you. You can find it on DesiringGod.org, John Piper's ministry website, where he preached in Angola State Prison. He preached from John chapter 6, and he said, Jesus came to be the bread, not to give bread. And this was the thing that continued coming to my mind over and over of how grateful that we should be as children of God because of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who gave Himself for us, His enemies, so that we can be saved and secured by His sacrifice. And just thought about this the whole time, but how often... Am I ungrateful if my car won't crank in the morning or the restaurant gets my order wrong? Right? In our text this morning, we encounter an unlikely character that exemplifies her gratefulness to Jesus for who he is. Now, there are two very different people we see in this story. One of them is a religious leader. One of them is the very one who should be pointing people to the Messiah and teaching people about the goodness of Jesus. And the other is a sinful woman who, unlike the religious man, recognizes and appreciates Jesus for who He is. And I pray this morning that as we walk through this text, we praise God for what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we're able to see Christ for who He is. And be grateful for the Son of God who humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to welcome us into His family, to be children of His Father, to be loved and secure for all eternity. We're grateful to Jesus because of who Jesus is. So if you're able, would you stand as we read this text? I'm going to read Luke chapter 7, 36 through chapter 8, verse 3. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Will you pray with me? Father, we are bowing before you now, expressing and confessing what we often probably do not desire to confess, and that is that we find ourselves more often than we want ungrateful. But God, as we look at this text and as we consider what Jesus has done, when we consider His compassion and His disposition toward the outcast, when we consider the magnitude of His forgiveness when it comes to the sins of those who are many, May we find ourselves praising You because of who Jesus is, the Son of God who gave Himself for us and provided a way for us to know You, to have salvation. And may we walk out of this place this morning saying that all we need and all we have and all we want is Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to make one quick observation before we walk through the body of this text this morning, but one of the key features of Luke's gospel is the role that outcasts, especially women, play in the narrative. And I want us to consider the woman in this narrative, and then I want us to consider what is mentioned in verses 8, 1 through 3 from the outset. In Jewish society, women had a subordinate place. I think a lot of us, if you're familiar with Scripture or familiar with first-century society or many centuries since then, even up into our own, to a degree in different cultures, know that. Even when we consider this particular scene, all of the guests at the dinner, uh, at the dinner, at a dinner such as this, uh, were likely males. Rabbis typically took care to avoid being in female company, let alone the company of a woman who was known to be a sinner. And in 8, 1 through 3, Luke explains that in addition to the 12 disciples, there was with them a group of women who had been cured of evil spirits, who had been cured of diseases, whatever those might have been we see in verse 2. And this alone, when we think about the context of when it was written and what Jesus is doing, this alone is extraordinary. Extraordinary. As in that time, it was not normal for rabbis to encourage female followers, but here we are in the gospel according to Luke, and we see women who are also following after Jesus. And Jesus' contrasting attitude was bound to raise eyebrows, as you can only imagine. But it is also worth noting that these women, all of whose names may have been known to Theophilus, the one to whom Luke is writing came from a wide range of backgrounds. Joanna, we see in verse 3, was the wife of an official in Herod's, uh, in, in Herod's uh, kingdom. Mary, verse 2, was a formal demoniac who would, have had, who would have been a social outcast already because of her affliction. But this diverse group helped to support Jesus and the disciples what Luke tells us, out of their own means. Giving of whatever means they had, whether they be great or whether they be small, to the ministry and work of Jesus. And in a sense, what we see here is exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And one of the beauties of the gospel is the way that it applies to and attracts a diverse range of people. And the story of the sinful woman at the dinner party continues that pattern of Jesus having significant interactions with unlikely people. And here, as always, Jesus seems unconcerned by what conventional society might think. And so I want us to navigate through this text by asking ourselves three questions, and they're my three observations. Question number one, are you grateful before Jesus or do you grumble to Jesus? Are you grateful before Jesus or do you grumble to Jesus? So the setting of this story is a dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. And in contrast to the party at Levi's house that we saw in chapter 5, verse 29, this story opens up or opens with a dinner invitation from a Pharisee. If you remember at Levi's house, the tax collector, the the one that the Jews hated, the guests were sinners and the Pharisees looking in were the intruders. They were the ones looking into the party who were intruding upon Jesus feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And so we have come to a part in the gospel of Luke where Jesus will perform a great miracle Or, excuse me, let me go back. Here in Simon's house, the host is a Pharisee and the sinner is the intruders. There's that contrast. And so, looking at that, we've come to a part of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus will perform a great miracle. And then, following a miracle, Jesus will then show these interactions with people, these conversations with people that I think are foundational for his ministry. And I think the foundational point of these interactions is that they serve to challenge the reader. They serve to challenge the reader to understand the kind of heart that can rightly see and rightly receive this miracle-working Jesus. So Jesus has previously healed people who were near death. We've seen that. Jesus has also, if that wasn't enough, brought someone back from the dead has brought someone back to life. He's given sight to the blind. He's cleansed the lepers. He's helping the lame to walk. And last week we saw an interaction where Jesus challenged his leaders when, or his hearers when Jesus didn't quite meet their own expectations. And so this week, the interaction is really one of testing for us, for his hearers here and for us as readers of this account whether or not we are grateful or whether we grumble. And so this story features two central figures that serve as a contrast. You have Simon the Pharisee, and you have a sinful woman of the city. And this meal is at Simon's house, and then in verse 37 we're told, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining Jesus at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Suffice it to say, there are some cultural things going on here that are not quite what we might understand culturally in our own day. In Jesus' day, feet were quite dirty. Now, don't hear me wrong. I know here in Olo... A lot of people don't wear shoes, despite some of the stereotypes that may be true. But in Jesus' day, feet were quite dirty. People either had open-toed sandals or open-toed shoes, or they just walked around barefoot. And on top of that, add the dirty, dusty roads, add the animals that also traveled on those dirty, dusty roads, that were used for transporting things up and down these dirty, dusty roads, and you get the idea feet could be quite dirty. Now, there are also some things that are interesting, some clues as we approach this text that we can see in a Scripture text that help us to see the full thrust of this passage. So, for instance, if you look at verses 36 and 39, there's something that Luke subtly or not so subtly points out about these two figures. I just read to you about the woman who's described as a woman of the city. Now, we aren't told much more about this woman, but some commentators speculate that Luke's vague way of describing her lifestyle indicates that she was engaged in prostitution, and that may be indeed the case, but it's all speculation nonetheless. But we do know that her sinfulness was known. We do know that whatever was happening, Luke indicated that she was known for her sinfulness, the magnitude of what she was known for, whatever those sins may have been. She had a reputation for being dirty, for being unclean, for being unredeemable, if you will. And whatever specifies that whatever the specifics of this woman's situation, it would be hard to overstate the courage it would require for her to enter into this feast. I'm sure she anticipated Simon's reception. How could she not? It's a wonder. She may have not even thought she would make it inside before she's tossed out. But there was something about Jesus that had given her the strength to approach Him with tearful faith, although her sins were many. And then the other, another context clue that we see here is in verse 36 and following. Look at how many times the word Pharisee is mentioned to describe Simon. Twice in verse 36, once in 37, and again in 39. Luke doesn't call him by name. He says the Pharisee. It's pretty clear that Luke wanted to be sure that it was known that the other main character in this story was a Pharisee. Now remember, Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders. They were higher up on the social strata. They were respectable. They were commendable. They were buttoned up. They were cleaned up. They were good church-going folk. They graduated at the top of their class and they enhanced the reputations of their families. And in many ways across the board, the reputation and the social standing of these two figures could not be any more different a woman of the city, known for her sin, a Pharisee, the cleanest of clean, buttoned up church guy. Now, as we consider gratefulness and grumbling, gratefulness is interesting. We find gratefulness to be admirable, do we not? We find it to be a good character trait, something we hold up, something we want to raise our children to be. We want our children to be grateful. We want people to be grateful. We appreciate gratefulness. But sometimes we don't know what to be grateful for or to be grateful about. As Christians, one of the things that can easily develop within us is a sense of entitlement to the mercies and blessings of God. Whenever we are walking through a difficult trial or circumstances, and then God intervenes sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, our attitudes can be one of, well, it's about time, and not one of, oh, thanks be to God. You know, a good caution for us as we think about gratefulness and grumbling and our attitudes towards Jesus is to to just think, Am I more like the woman in this story in my gratefulness to Jesus for his grace? Or is my attitude for Jesus kind of like that of a cable repairman? He says he'll come between 8 and 5. You've been there, you've done that. And when he doesn't show up on time, you begin to feel angry. You feel like you've been wronged, even. You get great pleasure when he shows up and fixes the internet and then gives you 500 new TV channels that you'll never watch, but you need them for some reason. But he fixes you up nonetheless and you feel great. But then you feel disgust when you aren't receiving the service that you believe you deserve. The problem is that our attitudes towards Jesus Reveal nothing about Jesus, but everything about ourselves. Our attitudes toward Jesus reveal nothing about Jesus. No inconsistencies in who he is, no imperfections in who he is. What they do is they reveal everything about ourselves. Everything about our own hearts. And in this story, we kind of sense the snobbishness of Simon the Pharisee in verse 39. This woman comes in, and Simon and his guests are reclined at table. Now, this setup is not like our own. They didn't have tables and chairs that we have. The table may have been as high as a bench. It was much uh, uh, lower so that the guests would be gathered around kind of half-kneeling, sitting, reclining. Uh, You get the picture. And this woman comes in, and she starts washing Jesus' feet, his nasty feet. Jesus was a human, guys. He had nasty feet. All right? Drying them with her hair. We may not think much of this, but this is a pretty preposterous picture in first century Palestine. For a woman to let her hair down is viewed as immodest and it's viewed as inappropriate. And you see this still in some cultures today, Middle Eastern cultures. So she's let her hair down in public in the house of a Pharisee at that. And she's weeping and washing Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee in verse 39 tells us, says to himself, well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was, and no way he'd let her do that. She's a sinner. Listen to the condescension in these words. It's deeply ironic that such a woman rather than such a man is the one who knows how to properly greet Jesus. Again, are you grateful for the great grace of God in Christ or do you grumble? Do you look at others who seem to have an inroad to God's grace and you look down upon them and think they are unworthy? Church, let us not become gatekeepers to the mercy and love of God in Christ. Grumbling when we think people are undeservedly receiving grace. So again, are we grateful before Jesus or do we grumble? Second question I think we need to ask, we can ask ourselves from this passage, how well do you grasp the depths of grace? How well do you grasp the depths of God's grace? So the woman's actions in verse 38 are described in great detail and are open to a wide range of interpretations, but whatever the specifics may be, it is clear from Jesus' response to her that she was deeply moved by the prospect of forgiveness and restoration that was offered from Jesus. Jesus. In fact, it's hard to read this account without being moved by this woman's public weeping. Her willingness to dry Jesus' feet with her hair and shower them with kisses. It demonstrates a deep and a heartfelt reverence for who Jesus is. Now we're not told how Jesus knew what Simon was saying. He's obviously the son of God, (laughs) omnipotent in every way. But Jesus, Jesus, having heard these words of Simon saying, he says, yeah, if you knew who she was, you wouldn't be letting her do this. And Jesus looked at Simon and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And whenever in their spirit heard that from Jesus when you were grumbling to Jesus, hey, I got something to say to you. He addresses Simon in verse 40. Provides a brief parable in the following verses. Look at 41 and 42. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, a denarii was like a day's wage for a blue-collar worker here in the first century. So intellectually, when we read this story, it's very simple to us. Intellectually, this story is quite easy for us to digest. A money lender loans money to two different individuals, neither of which can repay the loan. The only difference between them is the amount that they owe. And so if the lender forgives them both, who will be more grateful? You can think about it in your own terms. Let's say you have, you have your, your mortgage on your house and then you have like a $100 credit card uh, statement. Someone comes and pays your house off opposed to your $100 statement. It's a lot, there's a lot of difference there, right? A big difference. And so this answer is obvious, and to his credit, Simon does not attempt to evade it. He doesn't go, what's going on here? Let me think through this. He just answers it straight up as to what the question is. We consider the differences between these two figures. Buttoned up Simon the Pharisee with no real issues or nothing needing addressing or cleaning up, and then there's this woman of the city who's going to be a handful. We need all hands on deck for this woman. And Jesus says, well, yes, Simon, she owes a lot more. You can see why her gratitude is greater. Just as the greater debtor will respond to mercy with greater love, so the greater sin, in this case, the greater sinner, in this case, the woman, responds to Jesus' message of grace with greater love than Simon shows. It's easy enough, right? We can move on. Well, not, not quite. Intellectually, we look at this and we go, sure, this is easy to digest. We get the point. This is much more simple than a lot of Jesus' parables, isn't it? I mean, we, we come to some and we're going, what is he even talking about? But spiritually, this story has profound depth to it. And we need to understand that there is no truth to the idea that God's grace is moving to one person and shrugworthy to another. Simon is not the hero of this story. Simon is blind. The weight, the burden of this story is that Simon totally misses his own need for Jesus. Jesus is basically saying to Simon here, this woman recognizes her great need for me and you do not recognize your great need for me. Do you see the wonder of the gospel here in this text The wonder of this reality that is presented to us in the Bible of how we as human beings have all sinned against, transgressed against, violated the law that God has set before us, as people who have been created by Him. And yet the wonder of the gospel is that it diagnoses us, all of us, it diagnoses us with far more honesty, with greater penetrating clarity than we really want. Sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we consider our imperfections. You may say, well, yeah, I have a little gray hair right here. Oh, I think I have a new wrinkle right here. But what the gospel does is that it actually does full body scans of our hearts. And it reveals our unworthiness before God. It reveals that we are sinners who have transgressed. It reveals that we are sinners who have violated God's law. But what the gospel does, and hear this, because there's many churches who miss this. There's many Christians who miss this. I don't want you to miss this. Had a conversation with a young man last night. I say young man, it makes me feel old. He's 28, but he's a young man, right? Had a conversation with him yesterday afternoon who got this first part, that the gospel diagnosed what's wrong with my heart, but he was having a hard time and missing the second part. We can't miss the second part. The gospel does a full body scan and diagnoses our problem. But what the gospel does is it not only diagnoses it, but it provides the prescription for us. Provides the treatment for us. And in Christ, who has been sent by God the Father, we find that healing. We find grace. We find forgiveness for the sins that we carry in our heart that we're aware of, and even the sins that we carry in our hearts that we're totally unaware of. The difference between Simon the Pharisee and this woman of the city is that one of them recognizes their need for Jesus, and the other is too busy looking down on these people at his home having dinner. How well do you grasp the depths of God's grace? No one is good, no not one. No one. Romans chapter 3. The wonder of the gospel is that it offers to expose and burn away any false veneers that would keep us from honest self-assessment. We must see what Christ says about our need for Him. Our attitudes and thoughts towards Jesus often reveal how little we grasp the depths of God's grace. If we fail to see our need for grace and have more of an entitlement towards Jesus of expecting the things from him that we demand of him, then we will always fail to see who he is and true value and worth that he would have for us. Christianity invites each of us to come and behold Jesus and be entirely changed and transformed by Him. But the problem that we need to recognize is that we cannot behold and be changed and be transformed by Him if we refuse to come to Him. The issue we often run into as Christians is not the lack of desire to come to Christ. It's the lack of desire for what it might bring with it. We come to Christ for transformation. But we often come with our own stipulations. We may say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to work in me. I need you to draw near to me. I need you to grow me and transform me. But don't touch my relationships. Don't touch my finances. Don't touch my time. Don't touch my affections. Don't ask me to do anything. Just make my life better. And what Jesus holds before us in this passage is that he, does not, that he does make our life better, but he does that by making us new. So how well do you grasp the depths of grace? Now, do you know the greatest danger we face as a church? It's not hostility from those who would disagree with us. It's not financial or organizational woes that may come upon us. It's not a church building that needs updates, maybe some repairs. No, the greatest danger that we face as a church is believing ourselves to be full of grace to the point that we get up from the table of fellowship with Christ and move on to something else. The richest wines of God's grace are not on the top shelf where only the spiritually elite can reach them. They're on the bottom shelf for those who fall before the feet of Christ to find them. But they're only there for those who will humble themselves enough to see. So as we've seen, there are two figures in this story. There's a woman of the city, sinful as it is in some way. We don't know her background, but what we do know is that she understands her great need for the Lord. Maybe you find yourself in line with this sinful woman. Maybe this morning you think to yourself, well, I'm really not the church type. I would say to you, welcome. Jesus offers himself to you. Maybe you say, I don't know what to do in worship services. You ask me to turn to a book of the Bible. You say, hey, turn to Luke, and I'm looking around to see which one of these people is named Luke. That's okay. I don't think we have a Luke here, by the way. If this is you, Jesus welcomes you, and he gives himself to you. The other side of the story is Simon the Pharisee. Maybe you feel like you're right in your wheelhouse, right in your comfort zone. You have all the answers. You're polished. You're buttoned up. You have it all figured out. You've been a Christian for many years. And if this is you, Jesus says to you, humble yourself fully. Yet again, do not ever get up from the table of grace and believe that you can walk in your righteousness and not in His. Whatever boat you find yourself in, we need to hear this and we need to see this. So the third question, remember the first question, do you have gratitude or do you grumble? Second question, how well do we grasp God's grace? Third question, will you, will Jesus' unmerited grace produce abundant gratitude in us? Will his unmerited grace produce abundant gratitude in us? Jesus compares the reactions of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman in verses 44 through 46 after telling the story of one who's forgiven a debt of 500 denarii, another forgiven of 50. And then he turns to the woman in verse 44 and addresses Simon. Look at 44 through 46. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So let's pause here for just a second. Again, cultural differences. Culturally, you're expected whenever you welcome a guest into your home to provide something for them, to wash their head, to provide a welcome, a hospitable welcome into your home. And it's like this guy had kind of food spread out. Jesus came in and he just says, just go help yourself, whatever. But there was no welcome for Jesus. In fact, culturally, the way the Pharisee seems to welcome Jesus into his home culturally is offensive. Opposed to the way the woman welcomes him. But the woman rushes in and she goes right to his feet again, the dirtiest part of him that needs cleansing. And why does she do this? Because she knows her unworthiness before Jesus. But not only does she know her unworthiness before him, but look at what else she knows in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. Now, we have to understand this wording can be a little difficult, and we really need to understand this. Is Jesus saying that her sins are forgiven because she came in and she washed his feet? No, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus says she has many sins, but those many sins have now been forgiven. She knows she has many sins. And Jesus says those many sins have been forgiven. Her extravagant show of love, what she's doing here with Jesus, for Jesus, was evident that God's extravagant forgiveness had taken root in her life. Jesus is not saying her sins are forgiven or could be translated or having been forgiven because she came and washed his feet. He is saying that her sins are forgiven or also could be translated have been forgiven. And her coming to wash my feet is an example of the gratitude that she has for what has already taken place. Within her. Later in verse 50, Jesus will say that her faith has made her well. Not the act of Jesus washing her feet. Her faith in Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to Simon the Pharisee, I'm not your insurance policy. I'm not to be found boring and insignificant or irrelevant to the problems, the trials, the hardships, the circumstances that your life is in today. No, I am the one who speaks the answer. I am the one who speaks life. I am the one who raises you up to myself. I am the one who gives you to God. Your confidence is in your own personal righteousness rather than an awareness of your sinfulness before God. And as a result, you are not thrilled by the prospect of having your debt forgiven. He loved Jesus little because he had experienced little forgiveness Has Jesus' unmerited grace produced abundant gratitude in you? Let's do some diagnostic tests. And I know there's probably, a, there's probably some sort of a, a stereotype that when a pastor gets back from a mission trip, he's going to preach long. That might be correct today, by the way. So Let's do some diagnostic tests, which some of you are thinking, dude, you preach long every Sunday. What are you talking about? That is correct as well. I want to say at the outset of these diagnostic tests, these are not guilt-inducing. They are intended to help us think through what my heart towards Jesus looks like. Where might I need work in my own life? We all need to ask ourselves that question each and every day as we follow Christ. Think about a diagnostic test in your car, the light on your dashboard that lights up. You don't go turn the light off. You ask, well, what is this light revealing about my vehicle? Something that's not right. Well, I'm just turning the light on here for all of us. What is your attitude toward God's Word? What is your attitude toward God's Word? What is your attitude towards communing with God in prayer? Do you find Him boring, insignificant, irrelevant with whatever is going on in your world? What is your disposition toward others? Do you look at others feeling like, yeah, they need to clean themselves up, or do you first look at yourself and say, Lord, give me all the mercy that I can get? Give me all the grace that I can receive. I'll have it twofold. I'll have it threefold. I'll have it fourfold. Just keep it coming my way. You know, the person who recognizes their great need for the grace of God is the person who extends abundant grace to those around them. But if you are quick with a temper, quick to condemnation, quick to judging those who aggravate you or wear on your nerves, the problem is probably not them. The problem is our poor understanding of God's grace. Do you know one of the beautiful things about the church, and there's many beautiful things about the church, about how God has constructed the church and membership within a church and belonging to a local church family. There are many beautiful things, but one of the beautiful things about the church is that we get one another. We get one another. God's gift to each other. We don't get a bunch of people that we see eye to eye with on every single minor or even some major things. We get a group of people that we have been given to to walk alongside of one another with in the faith. And the wonder of that is that we, as we recognize how if we are going to exist with these other brothers and sisters in the faith, then we are going to have to show them grace that is pushing us toward realizing that we need a lot more grace in our lives from others, but also from God. We're all different. We all have different likes, different interests, different beliefs on certain things, believe it or not. But we're a gift That God has given to us. You're a gift to me. I'm a gift to you. You're a gift to the person next to you. You're a gift. You need to extend grace and you need to receive grace as well. What is your attitude toward God's word? What is your attitude or disposition toward others? What do your schedules or your finances reveal about your heart attitude toward Jesus? Does gathering with Christ's church get first priority or does it kind of get the bottom of the barrel? You know, like if all my other plans fall through, maybe I'll make it. What is your perspective toward money, toward possessions? What do they reveal about your attitude toward Jesus? Are they the things that really get you going in life whereas Jesus is kind of okay? You know, the wonderful thing about our money, the wonderful thing about our time, the wonderful thing about the things that have been given to us To steward, is that they are given to us that they might reveal in us either the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in all things, whether or not we find him to be of supreme value, or they are given to us in a way that reveals, okay, I have a little work to do here. Now, I'm not saying, hey, you need to up your giving or anything. This is simply a diagnostic test. I'm just saying, what is the condition of our hearts? I don't want us to up our giving and do so from hearts that do not know the grace of God. This is about our attitudes toward God. And so the question that I ask is this question. Is the grace of Jesus deeply precious to you? Maybe the only way to that this morning would be to pray, Lord, cause your grace to become real to me. Maybe in ways that it never has before. Cause me to see the pharisaical nature of my own heart that is keeping you from seeing, keeping me from seeing the beauty of Jesus or calls me to see the sinful nature of my own heart that will actually then allow me to see Jesus with spotlights shining on Him as our Savior who has come and shed His blood for us. What will it be for you, church? I'll leave you with this. How can we cultivate such awareness and gratitude? Now this passage offers little in terms of practical guidance. But certainly it encourages us to self-examination. Are we more aware of our good deeds? Are we more aware of our own personal morality as Simon was? than we are of our deep need for forgiveness like this sinful woman. Do we think about our righteousness in terms of external compliance with specific rules? Or do we see ourselves falling horribly short of the perfect love of God that we are called to show the people around us? When we are weak and fall into sin, does it drive us to Jesus for mercy? Or merely into a resolution to try harder and do better next time? The example of the sinful woman encourages us to be aware of our sin, not in order to celebrate it by any means, but in order to celebrate how great the grace and forgiveness of God really are. It's incredible. If we find our hearts in need of adjustment in this regard, there is no better place to go than the cross of Jesus Christ. No better place. This passage does not mention the cross of Jesus or Jesus' plan to die for the sins of His people, but there is a question lingering in the background of this story. How can God forgive this sinful woman? How can Jesus forgive this sinful woman without Himself being unjust? How can a holy God forgive someone who has committed many sins? Well, God's answer to that question comes at the cross where Christ paid the debt for our sins. As Christ bore our sins on the cross, He satisfied God's justice and secured our forgiveness. And church, my call to you and my call to myself each and every day is to receive this, know this, and be grateful for this. Pray with me.